This is Jennifer Pepito with the Restoration Home Podcast. This is the show where we talk about the peaceful path to connected families and restored communities. Today on the show, I'm talking to my daughter, Emily Pepito, about teaching language arts. We're on a series of kind of managing homeschooling and talking even about some subject specific topics. So today we're going to talk about teaching language arts because one of the things that I've seen that is so sad in homeschooling is where parents actually will eliminate reading out loud to their children in favor of workbooks. They load on these like super tedious workbook style curriculum that have lots and lots of like wordy text and then there's no time to read out loud or for your child to read, no time for narration and notebooking. And I want to help you feel more confident doing a literature style curriculum. And I'm talking to Emily today because Emily had a more literature based homeschool kind of uh, curriculum. And we read out loud a lot. She did, you know, maybe some language arts, like there was in second grade, I remember, Emily, I don't know if you remember this, but I tried this Rod and Staff reading workbook and it was so boring. It was like, you read a little section, there was pages and pages of stuff to fill in the blanks on. And I was like, why are we doing this? Why don't we just read and do something a little bit simpler? And so in the Peaceful Press resources, we read books and we narrate, talk about what we read. And then we draw pictures or write about what we read. And we call that notebooking and narration. And then you can also, like in the younger years, do phonics and spelling. After fourth grade, add in writing and grammar. What do you think about some of the things that have helped you be a good writer? Because that's the whole, you know, core of language arts is shaping a child's worldview, giving them a taste for beauty. You know, the mind feeds on ideas, Charlotte Mason says. And so giving them a feast of beautiful books to help them understand how beautiful language works as well as shaping their worldview. And then if they've had a feast of living books, then it's easy for them to be good communicators. What do you think about that, Emily? I think it's totally true. I think different children are going to be more or less interested. I think when I was 15, I read... Lay Miz word for word. And when I was 13, I remember reading some kind of big books and part of it was just like a personal challenge. But at the same time, I really was struggling in math. So you're going to have children who are going to more or less enjoy reading. But I do think that the peaceful press structure of reading good literature, of learning how to synthesize ideas by repeating back what the story was about and the ability to summarize things is such an incredible way to learn because it's very it's very organic it's very all-inclusive like it covers it's it it incorporates learning literature in a way that makes it seem like a necessary skill for day-to-day life whereas my overarching problem with most workbook material is that it feels so removed from what I need in day-to-day life or what is actually enjoyable or what is reality that most of us who are doing workbook learning are just remembering enough to regurgitate it and move on. Yeah, that's so good. It's, 
you know, the peaceful press is based on the Charlotte Mason method. And I love Ambleside Online is one of the really original Charlotte Mason resources. And they have a great article on teaching language arts. And so for them in first through third, first through third grade, they focus on phonics or reading instruction. And so like in the peaceful preschool and nourishing nature kindergarten, there are many activities that help build your child's reading ability through sight words, through learning what the sounds of the letters are, and then stringing those sounds together to make words, lots of rhyming activities. But some families add in something like explode the code or all about reading to further their child's phonics and reading ability. And then also in the early years, oral narration is a big part of it where you read a picture book or a chapter in the Little House on the Prairie if you're doing Playful Pioneers, and you ask them to tell you about what they read or what was your favorite part of that chapter or what was interesting to you about that chapter or maybe even asking a specific question like what did farmer boy do when he got his birthday present something like that and then the other part of the early years grades one through three is copy work and that's a big part of the peaceful press is we include portions of poetry scripture, we include quotes from famous people. And all of these are the most inspiring quotes, you know, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins poetry or poetry like hope is a thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the without a word and never stops at all. So we include this beautiful poetry as copy work. And so with the peaceful press for young children, they will simply trace a few words in the kinder copy bundle for children who are printing, they can use the print bundle. And then children who are learning cursive can use the cursive bundle. And children who are writing well on their own can use the elementary, which is copy work, where you have the words on top and then blank spaces for them to write. And then in grades four through six, this is when children should be reading on their own and doing oral narration of various subjects. And they could around ages 10 or 11, start doing more written narration. So at this point, when you read a chapter out loud or they read a chapter, they take their own time to write a narration. And then also with the Peaceful Press, we really recommend focusing on grammar or writing each year. So you're still doing the narration, but you know it does take some work to teach a child how to put together a cohesive paragraph, how to remember to add in some interesting words or how to remember to have a strong thesis statement. I remember, Emily, when you did your first year of a speech class, it was, I I don't remember the organization, but it was one of the big national speech and debate organizations. And you did a writing class with them. And up until then, you had done some Rod and Staff grammar. And I think that was the main writing instruction. Had you done any other writing instruction before then? Can you remember? I think Rod and Staff was the first grammar-heavy writing instruction I can remember. Yeah, I know that you you children also did some learning language arts through literature. And we don't recommend some of these, like language arts through literature, good and the beautiful. They're not my top recommendations because they are so inclusive of many of the things that we're already covering in the Peaceful Press. Like in the Peaceful Press, we're already covering narration and copy work. And so to do a resource like Good and the Beautiful or Learning Language Arts Through Literature that also includes copy work and narration and things like that, it's a little bit overkill. So I recommend for families who want to add in 
a grammar resource, something like Daily Grams or Fix-It Grammar from IEW or Easy Grammar, something that's more subject-specific. If you want to work on composition, I recommend IEW's writing, you know, American history writing lessons or any of the IEW resources. And I know that Charlotte Mason purists are like, what? Not IEW. But I do feel like for some children, and I have a friend whose kids all did IEW, it really helps when you get to university to be able to read a text and write a clear and cohesive report on it, basically an essay. What helped you learn to write great essays, Emily, because you graduated summa cum laude and you're working on a dissertation for a decentralized finance paper for a Juris Doctorate. So what helped you become, create cohesive essays, basically? I think a huge part, honestly, is knowing how to think. Because if you know how to think, then you can put ideas on paper and you can synthesize your thoughts in a way that makes sense, that flows. I definitely remember Rodenstaff grammar being really useful. And I remember actually going back over it when I was like almost graduated from high school maybe and in like the fourth or fifth grade one and thinking, wow, like this is just a really great resource. And um, I think it was super useful for understanding sentence structure and understanding how to craft a paragraph And then the other thing is that when you go into English 1A in university, which if you go to university in the U.S., you will have to take, um, they will also go over really basic essay writing structure and how to write a narrative that is informative, how to write a essay that is technical, how to, um, you know, how to source, how to cite, how to integrate quotes. And they, they cover a lot of the things that you're teaching in school, which is again, why I think the reading method and the narration and, and that ability to sort of learn and enjoy ideas is, um, so valuable because a lot of the technical stuff you'll actually are going to learn in college if you want to go to college. And if you don't want to go to college, um, can be pretty easily learned when you're a little older. And I think a lot of times just on the learning how to write or learning learning how to move through the English language and, and form sentences and write paragraphs, if you think about the average person, they if they're choosing a degree where they have to write a lot of essays, it means that they, are, they A, enjoy it, they probably have some natural skill in it, and, and C, they're really going to be taught and coached at the university level. But for a lot of students who are choosing more like STEMs subjects, so science, math, things like that, they, um, they actually won't need a lot of essay writing. And then music, same thing, not a lot of essay writing. And so I think this approach where you're equipping your children to formulate ideas, to comprehend, to synthesize what they understood – um, is yeah incredible because they're gonna pick up the technique through repetition, and it's gonna happen when their brain is a little bit more able, basically, to think technically. Because a lot of things, like for me, I I really enjoyed writing, and I'd write these stories, but my my ability to sort of comprehend the technique of writing 
actually came a little bit later and it came when it needed to come, but I was able to take some of these bigger ideas and my ability to think kind of big picture to small picture and, and make connections and, and, and draw, draw lines between ideas and all of these things. That was what enabled me to actually have content to apply the technique to. I think that's so good and so interesting, Emily, because, you know, in classical education, they talk about how the first stage or the grammar stage is about teaching knowledge, and then the logic stage is about teaching understanding, and then the rhetoric stage is, it says in a Veritas Press article, it teaches uh, a wisdom, but I think the rhetoric stage actually refers to that ability to uh, speak back, like you've had all these years of knowledge and wisdom. And so at this point, you can start to share what you've learned. And so maybe, you know, we're expecting too much when in public schools, for instance, they're asking young children to compose their own stories, or, you know, all of this composition that they're asking young children, when they really haven't read anything or know anything or understand anything yet. And this is why I'm so passionate about the peaceful press way of homeschooling, is that you don't squeeze out out the really good, soul-stirring, beautiful stories and poems and biographies with a bunch of tedious workbooks. Like we, one year I bought a unit from another company that does these little one-month units and there's a lot of words and workbook pages and not a lot of story. And it was like, yeah, sure, I could prove that my child did some work. Like there is a page to prove that they did something. But nobody was engaged. Nobody was excited about the information. How much better when you read a chapter and then your child gets excited about the topic and they start following these rabbit trails and researching on their own because you've left enough margin in your day that they can still have a brain to think with. And you've also started with an engaging story. This is what Charlotte Mason calls living books. And I think living books are defined as books that... Um, spark. They create ideas. They create uh, engagement. Like they, your child wants to read more. What do you think is a difference between a living book and like what uh, Karen Andriola would have said twaddle, would have called twaddle? That's a really interesting question because some living books, like Fahrenheit 451, for instance, I consider that a living book, but it's actually quite simplistic in its writing style, in its ideas. Like it, it's a great book. I think it's fantastic, but it's it's simple. It's straightforward. It's a very brusque form of writing. And then you go to something like The Count of Monte Cristo and you have a hundred characters with a with hundred different backstories and they're all developing to the single point of interconnection and this dramatic revenge. And, and it's a very different style and, and both of them force you to have ideas about things. And I think there's another kind of book, and, and I call it, like, it's probably twaddle, but I would call it, like, just mind candy. Like, the kind of book that you read when you don't want to think, you don't want to have to exercise your brain to grasp it. You just want candy, basically. And I think a great way to do it is actually to find lists of books and of classical literature from people that you trust and just start training yourself to appreciate fine literature and to enjoy well-written books and and use that as sort of a launching ground especially if you didn't maybe grow up in a family with a lot of reading 
um, it can be kind of daunting to figure it out. And, and like for some of us, our, our taste is just more or less intense or more or less intellectual. And it's not a good or a bad thing, but if, if we are partly homeschooling to give our children access to either a better education than, than what we got, or we really want to learn to value reading and, and value books, the ideas that they present and the way they work our brains, then we do need to find reliable sources of literature, i.e. lists of yes. living books. Which would be the peaceful press. But, you know, as Charlotte Mason said, for the children, they must grow up upon the best. There's never a time when they're unequal to worthy thoughts, well put, inspiring tales, well told. And I think that's a beautiful definition of a living book because a living book doesn't necessarily have to be an old book. I think there are a lot of families who want to do Charlotte Mason homeschooling. They think that they have to find this 1800s book list that Charlotte Mason used and stick with that. But really, a living book doesn't have to be an old book. Some of the most beautiful living books for us have been maybe a little bit newer, like Shackleton's Endurance. It was about an event in the early 1900s. I'm not sure actually when the one that we use in The Kind Kingdom was written, the C.S. Lewis books. You know, some of the most beautiful books have been even written in our time. And so we don't have to be afraid of newer books, but I think that we do have to look at a book and say, is this a hopeful worldview? Like, is this book going to leave my child feeling like they are a victim and cannot get out of that state of being a victim or they are um, inherently bad because of some aspect of their personhood? So, you know, we do actually do a lot of pre-reading for some of our ages in our home. Look at the list at Read Aloud Revival or the Peaceful Press. I think that it is important to assess books, especially if you're looking at modern books and say, you know, does this fit the culture of our home? Does this book fit our family rule and our family values? Or is this something we can pass over for now? And, and there are books that our family has passed over. And then later on, people will read them and they're like, uh, I mean, wasn't a big win anyhow. Can you think of any of those, Emily? I mean, the quintessential one would be the Harry Potter books. Like I think when, I don't remember how old I was when they came out, but definitely we shied away from magic and not to offend any of the massive Harry Potter fans out there, but having read it while finishing up my PhD, <laughs> I like have this thing sometimes where, like in the spring, I just need like a mental break and then I'll like binge my way through a series. So I think I read all six or seven Harry Potter books in like 72 hours didn't sleep a lot, but reading them, I was like, wow, these are so, they're just, they're, they're kind of trite. And, and they, I can see how if you were young and you read them, you might be, you'd have an emotional attachment to them and you'd really enjoy them. And it wasn't even about like the magic content. Like at this point, I've read enough other books where I still try to be um, wise in what I read, but there's a clear good and evil. Like it's not, it's not a big deal, I think, but the just the quality of it, um, which yeah, not to to diss on the Harry Potter books, but the quality of the storyline. I mean, literally, if you read all seven books in a seventy-two hour period, like I did, you're like, this kid does not change. And I think one of the fundamental, actually, characteristics of living or good literature is a protagonist who changes. And if the protagonist isn't changing. And stuff is coming at them and they're staying the same person. So maybe they're making it through what's coming at them, but they're staying the same person and they never change. That's not living literature. And 
it's because it's not a it's not a story arc that inspires us or causes us to think or be stirred. It's just very it's it's flatlining. It's really flatlining, and and that is yeah the Harry Potter books. I I read quite a few in that sort of like same kind of like early spring like pre exam mental break. I've read a few other like big series, and again, not to diss anybody who likes some of these like kind of blockbuster like book series, but just reading them, I'm like, literally, it's three massive books about a single character who does not change a thing about themselves. And it is so dull. And so I think like that is, yeah. (laughs) That's really interesting because, you know, you look at the Hobbit books and the hero grows. And even in some of the epic Bible stories, the hero grows. Like there is a path of you go through a trial and it makes you a better person or it makes you learn something. And I think that's maybe part of what can identify a living book is something where it's really obvious. Good and evil is really obvious. Um, Humanity is on display. Like it's okay to be human, but where you leave it with a little bit of hope. Well, thanks so much for joining Emily and I today to talk about language arts and managing the teaching of language arts. I really hope that you're inspired today to simplify things because there should be enough time in your homeschool schedule for your children to think about the books they're reading and make up their own play and make up their own ideas about it if you want them to be thinkers later in life. So thanks for joining. 